You can have a seat. If you will, you can turn back to Romans chapter 13. Um, I'm excited for this morning, even though this isn't the easiest passage, right? A little bit of a controversial passage. It's, it's interesting when we do our scripture reading. Some weeks, everyone's kind of like nodding along, right? Like really like, you know, yeah, this is awesome. Not much nodding this morning, right? This is a tough one because I, and I, think, I think the reason it's tough is because the whole passage is about authority, and we don't like authority. At least I don't, right? Like, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. Scripture shows us that we don't even want God to tell us what to do a lot of the time. And so let me just say this. Again, it is, this is a kind of a controversial passage. Um, so if this morning I say something you don't agree with, something you don't like, just know I do want to hear from you. So you can send me all your emails to joecappel at westparkbaptist.org. I'll get back to you when I can on those, okay? Um, before we start, let me, let me just read this passage again. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So before we jump into this, I think this will be helpful because though this applies to us, though we take this and apply it to ourselves, Paul is writing in a specific context to Christians living in the city of Rome. And so I think it would be helpful just to do a little five-minute history lesson here on the Roman Empire and who was ruling them during this time. So here's what I want to do. I'm just going to introduce you to three emperors that were around this time so you can get a feel for for who Paul is talking about here, who he is calling these, Ro- these Roman Christians to submit to. Okay? So let's look at three emperors, starting with Caligula. Okay? So Caligula, you can see up there, Caligula, he had a very short reign, 37 to 41 AD. In 41, he was assassinated, so a short, short time that he was reigning, but he fit a lot into those four years. So the reason he took over as emperor was because the emperor Tiberius before him died. Um, The rumor is that the reason that Tiberius died was because Caligula smothered him with a pillow. So that's how he got to be emperor. Once he became emperor, he pretty much immediately started taking all the money that was gathered for taxes and using it on luxurious houses for himself and creating new laws to give himself more power. Another thing that he was known for is he would sleep with the wives of the senators and then go tell them about it just because he could. Okay? That was how he used his power. 
One time, famous story about him, one time he was at some gladiator games, and what they would do is they would use, you know, prisoners or, or whatever for this, um, but they ran out of prisoners to put into the gladiator games. And Caligula got bored, and so he designated an entire section of the stadium to be thrown in and eaten by wild beasts for his entertainment. Okay, so that, that was the kind of guy he was. Um, this is actually a couple things here. These are my favorites. He believed that he was a god, okay, believed that he was a god, and he took this so seriously that he started a campaign to go out and cut off all the heads of statues of gods around Rome and replace them with his own head. So every statue around Rome had his head on them as the god. And then this is my favorite. One ancient historian tells a story that Caligula got mad at the god Neptune, and Neptune was the god of the sea. So the way he handled that was he sent an army out to whip the waves and pick up as many seashells as they can for their plunder, just to show Neptune that they were in control. Okay? That's Caligula. He lasts four years, and they have enough of him. Okay? So he's leaving a theater and gets murdered by you know whoever. Um, gets murdered. He's done, and that leads us to Claudius. And so Claudius takes over in 41 and reigns until 54, so a little bit longer reign. Claudius, when you compare him to Caligula, was a little less crazy. Okay? He was a little bit, it was a little bit more stable when he was ruling, but he did do something that, that really matters to this, this letter of, of Romans. You, we talked about this in like September of last year, so you probably don't remember it. Uh, but he did this thing that was really important because he got mad at all the Jews um, we don't know for sure why, but one, one uh, historian says it had to do with Crestus. So we assume that it had something to do with Jesus and some of the arguments that were going on. So Claudius gets fed up with the Jews and sends them all out of Rome for five years. So it's like he, he does it in 49. Until he, he is not emperor anymore, they are sent out and cannot live at home in Rome. We actually are told about this in Scripture. So in Acts 18, Paul meets... Uh, Paul meets, sorry, Aquila and Priscilla, right? You know those names. They're members of the Roman church. And we're told that the reason he meets them in Corinth is because they had to leave their home because Claudius made them, okay? So he sends all the Jews out from, um, from Rome. Interestingly, if you think back way back, like last fall semester, a lot of what Paul was doing in this, this letter to the Romans was helping the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles come together and do church together. Because what had happened is Claudius had sent all the Jews out, so the Gentiles ran the church for five years. And then the Jews all came back, and it was totally different, right? And so Paul is actually in this letter. A lot of what he's doing is trying to help them get along, okay? So that's Claudius. He rolls up to 54, and then he is murdered by his wife so that her son, Nero, can take over as emperor. And you've probably heard that name, right? If I asked you, name a Roman emperor, that may be the one that you would know is Nero. And so just a little context, so Paul is writing Romans about 57 AD, so about three years into Nero's reign. Um, Nero comes into power in 54 at the age of 16, okay? Any 16-year-olds in here? Y'all ready to, to run a, an empire, right? So he comes in at 16 and actually does a pretty good job at the beginning. Um, and so Paul is, is writing Romans during good Nero time. Now, you just saw... It was still crazy, okay? Like he'd feel, you know, they'd just come out of a lot of crazy emperors. But this was good Nero time. But it's interesting what they were being prepared for. 
Because about five years in, Nero really goes crazy. He hits his 20s and just goes insane. Um, he turns on his own mom, who is the one who got him into power, tries to kill her three times and can't do it, okay? Tries to poison her, that doesn't work. He then tries to have her whole house fall in on her. Somehow she survives that. Then he gives her a ship that he has rigged to be able to sink at his command. She swims back to shore after that. And then finally he gets fed up and just has her murdered the old-fashioned way with swords and all that stuff. So he kills his mom. Um, and after he does this, the crazy really ramps up. And so I could, I could talk for an hour uh, about how crazy Nero got. And there's just story after story. I can, I can give you some podcasts if you, if you want to look into those later. Um, but here's, this is a good example of the kind of guy who Nero was. Nero, at one point, got mad at his wife, and he got so angry that he killed her by kicking her to death. Okay? But after he did this, he felt so bad about it that he actually went and found a young boy who looked like his wife, married this young boy, and called him by his wife's name. Okay? That, that's Nero. True story. Affirmed by historian after historian this time. That's Nero. Okay? And then, what he's probably most known for is Nero, and it se what it seems is that Nero did not like the way that Rome as a city was set up, so he came up with a plan to be able to change it. And he had a fire set, and Rome at this point is just all made of wood, right? So when this fire gets set, the whole city burns down. And the story goes that he actually sat there and like played the cello as it was happening. We don't know if that's true. But he had the whole city burned down because he wanted to rebuild it back in his image and how he wanted it to. So when he rebuilt it, he took up most of the room that was being used by the poor and built in a big house that he owned over top of that so they couldn't have homes anymore. He also, okay, he, he does all this. People start to get wise to it. They, they accuse him of doing this. And so he needs a scapegoat. And who's he pinned on? This weird little group of people who would not worship Caesar, right? He says the Christians do it. And so in order to just really show that it was the Christians that did this fire, he ramps up the persecution of the Christians. And so I could, again, a lot there, throwing them, in, you know, throwing them to wild beasts, things like that. One you know, horrible thing, he would have these um, parties in the evening at, at night, and you need something to light up you know, the area where you're having the party at night. So he would actually burn Christians at the stake in order to have light for his parties. Okay? That's Nero. Okay? And again, this is just a little bit about him. And then finally, Nero, um, actually, it, it, he makes it till his, I think he's about 30, and ends up, someone ends up taking the throne from him, and he has to commit suicide at that point. Okay? So here's why I tell you all that, a little short snippet of history. Here's why I tell you all that. It would be tempting for us to read Romans 13 and say, okay, Paul, but does this really apply to us? <laughs> right? Like, okay, Paul, but do you know how incompetent our leaders are? Right? No. Paul is writing this in this context, okay? This is the context that Paul is writing into. This is the context in which he says, verse 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So if you're asking how in the world are we supposed to be Christians in a nation where our leaders are so incompetent, guess what? You're not the first Christian to ask that, okay? And here's what we need to know, just off the bat. Know this. Over the course of 2,000 years of church history, 
we have seen over and over again that there is no government in which the gospel loses its power. They've tried all different governments to make the gospel lose its power. You remember that? Romans 1.16, Paul says the message of the gospel actually has power. I, I love that, right? It's not something that we have to like make look amazing because the gospel message itself is this powerful thing you just have to let out. Like a lion, you just have to let out of its cage. There's been no government that has been able to stop this message. Monarchies can't stop it. Totalitarian regimes can't stop it. And the person that you don't want to be in office, they can't stop it either, right? No one can stop this message. And so knowing this, Paul is able to say, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now notice, here, here's, if you're reading Romans, if you've been here, this may feel random, right? Like Paul, like stick to propitiation, stick to all that theological stuff. Why are you talking about the government? But just know, this is not random. Okay? This is a theme that shows up over and over and over again in Scripture. Here's a, a really helpful parallel passage from Peter. Okay? This is the Apostle Peter writing. He says this in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Right? And Peter is talking about Nero, the emperor that I was just talking about. Okay? Titus 3.1, here's Paul again. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and be ready for every good work. And just to fill out the context here, tradition tells us that Peter and Paul were both murdered by the emperor that they're talking about. Okay? It was actually they would lose their life because of the emperor that they're saying that we, or these Roman Christians, Christians should honor. This is clear, right? In a sinful world, governments aren't always good, right? We know that. Okay? In a simple world, governments are not always good. So let me, let me ask the question you may be thinking. Okay, Paul says, honor the government, even with all these horrible governments that he was living under. Is there ever a time to disobey? Okay? Is there ever a time? So Paul says here, be subject to the government. Is there ever a time for us to not submit to governing, governing authority? So here's what we have to do. Because if you read this, just, if you read this alone, it would seem like we would say no. Right, Because it seems like Paul is just being very clear. No, no matter what, submit to governing authorities. But here's the thing. We, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Right? We have to take Scripture and look at it as the overarching story that it is and interpret Scripture with other Scripture. And what Scripture makes clear, if we look other places, is that Paul here is talking about an ideal. He's talking about generalities. We'll talk about that in a second. But Scripture in other places makes it clear where there are times when civil disobedience is right and necessary. Yeah. Here's one example. This is in Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So the, the context here, the apostles have been told by the authorities that they can't preach the gospel. And here's their response, 529. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. So I think, I think this is um, the principle. Yeah, here's the principle. I think it's this. 
If the government prohibits us from doing what the Lord commands or commands us to do what the Lord prohibits, then we have no choice but to engage in civil disobedience because we must obey God rather than men. Okay? So we do what Paul says. I'll talk about that in a second. In general, we submit to the authorities. But if we're asking, when do we not submit to the authorities? It is if the government prohibits us from doing what the Lord commands or commands us to do what the Lord prohibits. You may be able to think of some other examples in Scripture where we see this, right? So the book of Daniel has a couple examples. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We love that story, right? Telling that to our kids. Awesome story. They get thrown into a furnace. Why? Because they disobey the government because the government says they can't worship their God. And they're willing to give up their lives for it. The same book, another popular kid story, Daniel resists the government by praying to God when he's told not to. And what happens to him? He gets thrown in with the lions. Uh, in Exodus, Pharaoh orders that the Hebrew midwives kill all newborn Hebrew babies. And remember, they go back to Pharaoh and they say, sorry, we can't keep up. They're having babies too fast, right? They refuse to do it. And then finally, famous story, Moses resists Pharaoh when the Israelites are enslaved. Let my people go, right? So we see these examples where, the, where civil disobedience is allowed. And this, this you know, this, so we, we, we know here that, that Paul, what he's saying, can't be a sweeping command. Now, here's where it gets tricky, right? Here's what I'm not going to really touch on as much as you maybe want me to. Where it gets tricky is when is civil disobedience really right? More than that principle I just gave. Right? There's a lot of situations that we come up against Christians where Christians may disagree. But here's what I did. I was trying to think. I was thinking, what are some possible situations where we could do this, where we could see it was the right time to do civil disobedience? Here's a few things that I wrote down just in my thinking. You may disagree with these, but, but here's three that I came up with. First of all, if the government ever told us we couldn't preach the gospel, we would disobey the government. Okay. I mean, you see that? that? That's Acts, right? That's Acts 5. The government tells us we can't preach the gospel. We disobey the government. Here's another one. If the government tried to force a Christian doctor who believes that abortion is murder to perform an abortion against her conscience, I think she should disobey the government in that situation. Here's one that I think about personally. If the government tried to force me to violate my conscience on what I believe the Bible teaches about Christian sexual ethics... I pray that I would have the strength to disobey the government right, and preach what I think that the Bible clearly teaches. So I think the key here is that my submission to the government can never be in place of my submission to God. And this is, this is something I think we see other places too. Paul references here at the end um, that we should submit, and he gives a very clear command. He says that we should pay our taxes, which is a very... Um, fun, you know, fun little uh, command there, right? Pay your taxes. Everyone wants to hear that. And so that's one way we submit is by paying our taxes. And we have to remember, you know, we can, we can try to squirm out of that, but he's telling this to Roman Christians whose taxes are going to the government who is persecuting them, right? To work and build the Colosseum where a lot of them will be killed and sent in to be eaten by wild beasts. But remember, this is consistent with Jesus' teaching. So there's this famous... Uh, story of Jesus, uh, you know it, where, where these people come up to Jesus and they ask him this question, hey Jesus, should we pay taxes? Right? They catch him, Jesus, 
tell us in front of here, everyone, should we pay taxes? And it's a trick question. Okay, here's what you have to know. It's, it's a trick question. Because it's putting Jesus, I mean, it's, it's, it's like asking a man, hey, have you stopped cheating on your wife? Right? Like there's no really good way to answer it. Okay, you can't answer it well. Because here's the thing, if Jesus answers this question and he says, yes, you should pay taxes, and doesn't say anything else, just yes, then all the Jews are going to feel like he's betrayed them, right? This government that is taking sometimes up to 80% of what they've earned, where they can't even support their family, it will feel like he has turned on them. But if he says no, what happens at that point? The Roman authorities could come in and arrest him as a rebel right there and then, which is eventually going to happen, but he doesn't want to happen right there. So what does he do? He asks them to give him a coin, right? And he holds up the coin and he asks, whose picture is on this coin? Caesar, right? Do you remember what he says? Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Have you ever thought about what that means? That's famous, right? Give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what's God. Here's the thing. It kind of, when you first read it, can feel like he's a politician squirming out of giving an answer, right? You know, in those debates where you just want the politician to answer the question and they won't do it. It can almost feel like he's doing that. But notice, they don't respond mad that he squirmed out of it. They respond in their, their, they're marveling at how he answered. Here's why it's so amazing. Here's what he's saying. He's asking, whose image is stamped onto that coin? Caesar. So give to Caesar what's his. Give him his taxes. Okay? The coin belongs to him. His image is on it. Give it to him. But think about this. Whose image is stamped on you? God's. God's. So we don't give to Caesar what isn't his. Give him his taxes. The coin is his. But you don't give him yourself above God. Right? You belong to God. His image is stamped on you. We never forget who we belong to. We belong to God himself. So when it comes to submitting, there are exceptions, right? We don't do anything that would mean that we're not submitting to God. But here's what you have to see. Okay, I wanted to talk about the exceptions, but here's what we have to see. Paul's not talking about the exceptions, okay? Our general, okay, the, the, the rule, okay, those are the exceptions. But the rule is that we submit to the governing authorities. And we can get so hung up on the exceptions that we forget the rule, which we have hundreds of opportunities to follow every single week. Hundreds of opportunities to submit to the government, even if we don't like it. So it's paying your taxes, right? Even if you think they're too high. Even if you think that where they're going isn't right, you pay your taxes. That's what Paul says. If it's following the laws of our government, even if you don't like them, that's how we submit. If you get a ticket, right, if you're speeding and breaking the law, and you get a ticket, you don't mouth off to the cop, you pay it, right? That's submitting to the authorities. Our default is submission. Disobedience is the exception, not the rule. Okay. So that's the what. Let's move on to the why, okay, the why. This is the question my three-year-old would ask if he's in here. Okay, submit to the authorities. Why? Right? Like, Knox, eat your dinner. Why? Put up your toys. Why? We, we don't really change, do we? Submit to the authorities. But why? Well, Paul tells us. Here's his answer, the last part of verse 13. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So notice this. For every government that exists 
and has ever existed, they only have authority because God allows them to have authority. That's the only reason they have it. Let me point out a couple things here. First of all, this is, this is, this is so important. A lot of Christians have a hard time looking past the government to where their authority actually comes from. We freak out over politics because we forget that the authority only comes from the one who's higher than them. Psalm 2 tells us that God laughs as they make their plans. Right? Their authority only comes from God. we got to remember this. Okay? As we're going into 2024, we need to implement Operation Don't Lose Your Mind. Okay? No matter what happens, don't lose your mind because the authority does not come from anywhere other than God. The Holy Spirit, no, okay, here, as bad as Nero was, here's what I can promise you. The Holy Spirit was never nervous about him. You believe that? The Holy Spirit was never nervous about Nero. The Holy Spirit never gets nervous about our election results. He doesn't. He's not watching NBC, you know, as they're doing all the states, thinking, oh, man, hope that goes this way. No, he's not. He's not nervous about Putin. He's not nervous about Xi Jinping. He's not nervous about Kim Jong-un. Not nervous about Trump or Biden, whoever you're nervous about. The Holy Spirit is not. I love this. This is, this is awesome. In the midst of being unjustly arrested by the government, taken to trial, on his way to death, do you remember this? Jesus is standing before Pilate. And he's talking with Pilate. And here's what he says. I love this. John 19, 11. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. That's awesome, isn't it? He's standing before this man who has the authority to kill him. And he says, your authority is not coming from you. It's coming from my father. And this is a helpful case study because here's the, the question we could ask. And this could, be a whole, this could be a whole sermon because it's really a restatement of the problem of evil. But we can ask this question, okay, if God has the authority over these governments, if he's the one who's instituted them, then is he responsible for the evil that they do? It's a good question, right? But the answer is absolutely no, right? He's not responsible for what Pilate did, okay? That is Pilate's evil. That is Pilate's sin, okay? He's not responsible for what Hitler did. That is, Hitler is on the hook for that. But here's what's interesting, and I, and I love this. He's not responsible for it, but he does turn it for good, doesn't he? Because even as Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate ultimately sends an innocent man to his death, we know that God was working that for good because that man was dying for the sins of the world, right? So even when we look around and say, what are you doing, God? What are, what are you doing with our government? What are you doing with these totalitarian dictatorships? What are you doing? We can't always trace his hand and get the answer. But we can see his heart, that we know he loves us. We know that he's in control. We know, like Romans 8.28 says, that he's working for our good. And we have proof in that in Jesus, who was executed by a government, even though he didn't deserve it. But it was for our good, so that we can be saved. So no evil government can stand in the way of God's plans. Politics are important. Who is ruling is important. But as Christians, we can rest in the fact that Jesus is Lord. Amen. That's the what. That's the why. Now the how. 
Okay, how do, how do we live as Christians on earth with governments ruling us that aren't always good? What's the how? And Paul really answers two questions about how this all plays out. I think he, he, he answers it two ways. What should those who govern do? And what should those being governed do? So what's the role of the government? And what's the role of those of us who are being governed? So let's start with the government itself. I think we can summarize it this way. The government, their job broadly, based on what we see here, is that they should promote good and punish evil. Promote good, punish evil. That's how Peter says it. He says, the government is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then Paul says the same thing. So verse 3, he says that the government should approve of what is right. They should promote the good. So what does that mean? Okay, a lot of disagreements there, right? Like what does it mean for the government to actually promote the good? Here's what's interesting, okay? Our government in the United States, I think that if you look at history, we can see they have not always worked for the good of everyone. I don't think that's controversial, that they have not always worked good, worked for the good of every group of people. But if you go and you look at our Constitution, the preamble of our Constitution, actually the goals that were set out are very good. And this is actually really helpful. So let me just read this for you. Maybe you remember this from elementary school when you memorized it. Look at this. It says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. That's actually a pretty good starting place, right? I was, I was interested to find that this week, I was reading a letter from Frederick Douglass, who is talking, and he's talking with, a, with another African-American, and basically responding, they're basically saying, we just need to burn the whole thing down. And he actually, his response, I'm summarizing, but his response was, actually, we just need to get them to do what they said they wanted to do, right? Like, we just need them to actually do that and do that for everyone. So that's a good starting place, right? Working for the good. That's what the government should do. Obviously, in a sinful world, um, it doesn't always happen, as we've seen. But that's what the government should do. They should also punish evil. Verse 4 says this, the government is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And this is interesting. So if you can think back a whole week to last week, Pastor Sam talked about uh, Romans 12, 19. Okay? Paul says this. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So these, these, these verses go together, right? Paul is saying here, one of, the ways, one of the reasons that we don't repay with vengeance is because God has other ways to do this. And one of those is through the government. Okay? If the government is functioning correctly, they should be the ones who actually punish evil. They are a God-ordained way for evil to be punished. So as individuals, we don't have to do it ourselves. So that, I mean, again, that's, that's broad, but that's what the government does. They pursue good and they punish evil. So what's our role? If you're not a part of the government, what is our role? We saw earlier we're called to submit. We're called to pay taxes. Well, let me point out two more. Two more. First of all, verse 3 says, we do what is good. 
That's what we're called to, to do what is good. Paul says, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. So again, interpret Scripture with Scripture. We know that Paul cannot be saying this is always the case, okay? Because Jesus only did good and was killed by the government, okay? So this can't apply across the board. But what's clear here is that our job is to do good. Now, that doesn't mean that we never criticize the government. There's a place for that, okay? We know that there's a place for that, and, and, and thankfully we live in a country where we're allowed to do that. Um, we know that's okay, because actually if you go read the book of Revelation, it's a critique of the government, okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's veiled in apocalyptic language, but there's a lot of critique of the Roman government in that letter. So the, Roman Christ, the early Roman Christians did critique the government. There's a place for that. We also... Um, we also, as, as Americans, we have to say, we have the honor of being able to vote in people or do our best to vote in people who will do what God has called them to do, to promote evil and to punish, or to promote good, sorry. Not that, yeah, well, okay. To promote good and to punish evil. We have an opportunity to have a hand in that. Maybe it'd be a small hand, but we have a hand in casting a vote of, pe- of men and women who we think will do that. But no matter what, no matter who is in power, our job is to do good, okay? We can't be all talk. If you're all talk, you're not going to accomplish anything, okay? You may feel good after you send out that tweet, but pay attention to how much is actually accomplished by it. The early church showed us that the best way to live as Christians, even if the government is against us, is just by being Christians, It's just by doing what God has called us to do. Let me show you. This is, I think about this so much. This is amazing to me. For the first three centuries of the church, for the first three centuries of the church, I gave you a little snapshot of the persecution that the the Christians were under. Here's what's crazy. For the first three centuries, Christianity spread like crazy. This is amazing. So this is, because this is first three centuries as they're being persecuted. This is the estimates that historians have given. And it's impossible to really know for sure how many Christians there were. But here's the estimates that you'll typically find from historians about how Christianity grew over the first three centuries of the Roman Empire. Okay? So here's, go to 40 AD, okay? Christians in the Roman Empire. In 40 AD, historians think there were around 1,000. Okay? Maybe add a few thousand to that, whatever. But it's not many in 48 AD, 15, or 17 years before Paul writes this letter. It's small, okay? Moving on, 100 AD, 60 years later, it's grown to 10,000, okay? That's still pretty slow growth, but it's up to 10,000 people, 10,000 Christians in 100 AD. Then we skip 100 years later, 200 AD, there's probably about 200,000 in the Roman Empire. And then here's where it gets crazy, 300 AD, there are about five to six million, five to six million which makes up about 10% of the Roman Empire. Some historians go as far as to even say it may have been 50% of the Roman Empire. Okay? This is all while they're being persecuted. And notice, the thing that you'll hear often is, well, Constantine converted, right? And that's when Christianity really took off. Constantine didn't convert until 312 AD. Okay? When Constantine converted, it was in his political interest to convert. I don't know if it was genuine or not, but there was a wave that he was riding. Okay? So notice this. Okay? This, is, this is huge, right? This is huge. 
The power of the gospel is amazing, right? The power of the gospel is amazing. Even as they're being murdered, even as they're being set out as lanterns by the emperor, Christianity grows. That's, remember, remember how Jesus called the kingdom a seed, a mustard seed, right? That mustard seed. You know, it, it's the old question. What's the best way to destroy a sidewalk? You can do it two ways. You can do it with a jackhammer or you can plant a seed under it. And if you give it enough time, that seed will ultimately bust through that sidewalk. That's what we see happening here. Even as people are trying to hold the gospel message down, it's spread and spread and spread. So that, it's, it's just the power of the gospel. But here's the other thing. I, I love this. There's this little book. It's worth checking out. It's by a historian named Larry Hurtado. and has an awesome name, Destroyer of the Gods. Okay? And here's what he's asking. How did this little group of Christians... 1,040 A.D., how did they eventually take over the Roman Empire? And I think this is interesting because he summarizes it all down into five things that they did. Five things that they did. And they're all things that could apply to us today. Okay? Five things. Here's number one. The early church was unified across ethnic boundaries. The early church was different from every other thing that was going on at that point in that it brought people together who had no business being together. You look at the church, and they were bringing in people from different um, ethnic groups, people with different colors of skin, people with different jobs. You had slaves, and you had rich people, and they were all coming together. And they were coming together because of what Paul said a couple weeks ago. The church is a family, right? And so they're all adopted by God, and they all came together as brothers and sisters. Pretty amazing. Number two, the early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. That was one of the ways that they showed the power of the gospel, because even as they were being persecuted, they never reviled the people who were persecuting them. They never even really fought back. They forgave, and they fought for reconciliation. Number three, the early church was well known for its hospitality. Hospitality literally means to love the stranger. And that's what the early Christians were known for. One example of this, there were some pandemics that hit. We know about that, right? And so this, this plague hits the cities and everyone fled. But the Christians stayed. And they made such an impact there because they were willing to give their own life to care for people who were sick and dying. They stayed, they took care of people even if it cost them their own life. Four, the early church was a community committed to the sanctity of life. Sanctity of life. So um, at this point, abortion was pretty rare. It was really dangerous. So actually what, what most people would do who didn't want their babies, and this often happened with um, babies, oftentimes uh, if they had female babies, they didn't want them in this culture. And so what they would do is they would actually take them and just throw them on the garbage heap and leave them there to die. That was their version of getting rid of, of their, their children that they didn't want. And so what the Christians did was they determined to actually go and go to these garbage heaps and adopt the babies off of them and raise them up. Because the only thing that ever happened on there was they either were raised by people to treat them as slaves or they died. And so Christians wouldn't let that happen. They would go adopt the babies and raise them up. They cared about the sanctity of life. And then finally, the early church was a sexual counterculture sexual counterculture. You got a little, I gave you a little taste of this in the, 
the history of the emperors, but the rule in Rome was that a man in higher authority could do whatever he wanted to someone who was in lower authority, and they couldn't say otherwise. Right? And so Christianity came and began to say that, that sex was for a man and a woman in marriage. And so you had all these women, slaves, and children where this was a very life-giving message, right? Because it meant protection for them, where they could previously be taken advantage of by anyone who wanted to. Think about those five. There's nothing crazy about any of them, right? All they were doing, and you can actually go back and trace in Romans, they're all commands in Romans at some point, just what it means to live Christianly. That's our job, right? No matter what the government's doing, no matter what situation we're in, just live like Christians. What an opportunity just to be hospitable, to love others, to welcome other people in, to forgive, to care about the sanctity of life. We have an opportunity even 2,000 years later. And think about this. Okay? Think about what we learned from history. The Christians did not come at Rome with a sword. That's not how they fought back. They fought back by doing these things that Christians do. And you know what? 2,000 years later, here's what we can see. The church is alive. <laughs> the church is thriving. That mustard seed is still growing. And I looked this up. You can pay $37 and take a tour of the Roman Colosseum right now. The place where Christians were being murdered, now 2,000 years later, you can tour it for $37. There's power in the gospel. There's power in living the Christian life, doing what is good. Let me close with one more thing, and then I'm going to let us apply this just here right now. Paul also tells us in verse 7 to honor those in authority. Give them honor, which again, it's hard if you don't agree with them, right? We're called to honor them. Even if we don't like the human being who holds the office, we honor them because the office God has them in. I'm sure Paul found it hard to honor Nero, but we know that he did it anyway. And in one of his letters to Timothy, Paul gives us a very tangible way to do this. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So here's the, here's the, the thing I, I've realized this week as I've been studying this, is I've often neglected this passage. As I'm thinking about who to pray for, honestly, the government um, doesn't often come to my mind. <laughs> and I'll also admit that as I'm thinking through the people who govern us or have governed us or will govern us, I have a tendency to pray for some and not pray for others, if I'm being honest, just based on how I feel about that person. And so here's what I want to do. I mean, Paul doesn't really give us a choice here, right? He says, no matter what, you pray for those people. And so I figured, why leave and say, go do this when we can just do it right now, right, as an application that we can do right here? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take about five minutes um, and I'm just going to ask you just as we close to get in with a group of four or five people who are around you. You can move chairs around if you need to. Um, 
And we, we're going to throw a list up here. So this is, and again, if you think of someone I didn't put up there, that's great. But I'm just putting some different leaders who we're called to submit to and honor and who we can be praying for. So you can see it's broken up there, federal, state, and local. And so I just want to give us about five minutes here. They're going to, they're going to play behind us. But just to split up and just pray for these people. Whatever you feel led, nothing specific, pray for wisdom, whatever you want to pray for. Let's pray for these men and women now. And then I'll come up in about five minutes to close us.